Welcome to the Crystal Clear Podcast with Weekly Standard founder and editor-at-large, Bill Crystal. I'm Eric Felton. Bill, joining us by Skype from London. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. So maybe since you're there in London, we should talk a little bit about uh, things British as opposed to the ever-dismal Washington political scene. Right. Well, I fled the dismal Washington political scene and the, you know, ineffectual and the Republican Party, which is forming circular and other kinds of firing squads and seems unable to govern and got here, landed here in London three or four days ago. And guess what? The Tory party <laughs> looks a lot like the Republican Party. They don't have Trump. I guess that's the one big difference. But in terms of having a exhausted uh, a set of politicians who don't seem to have much in the way of imaginative ideas and are getting enmeshed in scandals uh, and look likely to lose power sooner or later, uh, the Tories are uncannily reminiscent, I've got to say, of the Congressional Republicans and, and of uh, the Republican Party in general, in general, unfortunately. I'm also struck, the big thing I sort of hadn't focused on, and I don't know, you might have see, thought about this more, Eric, and I guess others have, but I really hadn't focused on the fact that Jeremy Corbyn is the leader of the Labor Party. Obviously, I knew that fact. A really extreme leftist makes Bernie Sanders look like a respectable Democratic type. And Corbyn is likely to be the next British prime minister. You know, the Tories are doing badly. Corbyn did well in the snap election earlier this year. The Tories look like they're in further meltdown. So, and that would really be astonishing. I mean, a major ally of ours, uh, electing his prime minister, uh, having his prime minister, someone who's deeply opposed to NATO and has been for decades, someone who, you know, will not be an ally in any serious sense in foreign policy, uh, who's going to take the economy in a really socialist direction, anti-Israel, um, friendly with various uh, terrible regimes and an apologist for, for even worse ones. Um, I, I just hadn't really sort of thought through the implications of that, the, how much it will embolden the left to move further left here, how much it really puts at risk NATO and the Atlantic Alliance. So I, I guess I'm more freaked out about Corbyn than I was when I came. I just hadn't really thought about that. I mean, it's a bad situation here because you have an exhausted conservative party and labor led by, I think, literally the most left-wing leader they've had in, in modern times. And maybe the best left-wing leader any of the kind of major left parties actually in Europe or in the U.S. has had. And that all looms while uh, Britain is still trying to figure out how to extricate itself from Europe. Yeah, which is not going well, I don't think. It's, it's tough and uh, Europe's not making it easy. Uh, people I know who were for leaving feel vindicated in a sense, but Europe's behaving so badly. People I know who were for remaining or against leaving, so they thought the cost would be too high, it would be too difficult. Uh, it would just it would cause too much damage to the economy and to other institutions. They feel a little vindicated, so because it's been much tougher than people, some of the people on the leave side said. So uh, that debate hasn't progressed much. I, most people think Britain will still leave. Uh, they can't really reverse that decision of the voters. But it could be messy. It could be expensive. Uh, one person I talked to here said, he, you know, you could already see some signs in, in, in real estate and business investment of people thinking, well, if London is not going to be a gateway to Europe as part of the EU, uh, you know, am I going to really increase my staff here in London? I'll, I'll just send people directly to Germany or France, someplace where you get the complete access to the EU market. Maybe London will have good access. They were at a good deal. But if not, they'd have various trade barriers and and so forth. So it's that's kind of a messy situation and one that I'm afraid 
even if the conservatives handle it perfectly, there'll be some costs and some disappointments. And they're not handling it perfectly, which probably helps Corbyn even more. So one of the things you've been doing while you're there in the UK is talking to students, and people put a lot of effort here in the US into trying to figure out how millennials think and how millennials are voting and where their politics are. What do you find the young people of Great Britain are thinking about? Are they snowflakes? You know, the ones I've met aren't. I've met some really terrific young people. I've got to say one of the nicest things about my three and a half, four days here, and the people who invited me over, but also others, I've, you know, their friends and, and others I've just met. I've spoken at Oxford, at Cambridge, and at King's College here in London. So, uh, you know, and I've tried to mix and mingle and ask them what's on their minds. Uh, you know, most of their peers have voted for Corbyn in the last election for Labour, so they're left. They, they have not, they've forgotten, they've never seen communism, they've never really seen serious socialism. They take the benefits of democratic capitalism for granted. That's a huge lesson for me. We need to reteach the benefits of free markets, the benefits of constitutional liberal democracy, and the like. I mean, that just can't be taken for granted with the with the younger generation. Um, I, I don't know, you know. So I haven't. Seen, I've seen the students I've dealt with, of course, are a very self-selected group and and a very impressive group. It's funny when I spoke tonight at at King's College in London, they actually made an announcement at the beginning that my lecture, my wasn't a lecture, but my discussion had not been judged one of those that the college had to send a monitor to a monitor to to remind the students of the op- option of finding safe spaces in case i said something that might really offend them and and uh, trigger you know uh, d- d- some some disagreeable sentiments i suppose but this was not a joke i really it's the first time i've actually seen this in person this notion that there's a i can't remember the name exactly they use but like a safe space monitor who looks at the roster of lecturers and guests and you know, will show up at the ones he thinks he needs to alert the students that they might hear something that would disturb them. I mean, we really are at a level of snowflakery and political correctness there that's uh, beyond parity. Well, let's uh, jump the pond and come back to the U.S. where on Tuesday there were big elections in New Jersey and Virginia for statewide races. The line heading into Tuesday for the Virginia election was that the Republican, Ed Gillespie, running for governor, was closing fast and that uh, Ralph Northam, the Democratic candidate, uh, very well might lose the race. It didn't turn out that way. No, a big surge of turnout among Democrats and among independents and and anti-Trump Republicans, I would say, uh, who decided to go out and I think send a message about Trump. It's not clear. I mean, that seems to maybe been the margin. I mean, Northam might have won anyway by two or three points, but the uh, eight or nine point win, uh, or really the eight or nine point defeat of Glass, even though he wasn't that Trumpy or Republican, he ran a sort of Trumpy campaign. And I, I think I know people in Northern Virginia who just felt, you know, I, I'm going to sort of send a message that I don't like that kind of campaign. There was also maybe excessive confidence among some Republican and moderately conservative voters in Virginia that, well, the Republicans control and have for quite a while both houses of the state legislature so they can check the Democratic governor as they've checked McAuliffe, uh, McAuliffe uh, Governor McAuliffe, the Democratic governor who's been in the last four years. The state hasn't done too badly. Now, it turns out, of course, it was such a wave that the House of the Delegates looks like it might be, I think there are still three or four races that, are, that it has to be recounted. They were so close, but it looks like it might go to 50-50 from 66-34 Republicans. So it was a deep wave. And when you have a wave like that, it can't just be about one candidate. Gillespie didn't run a perfect campaign or something. It 
at least something bigger was going on. And I think it was that the Republican Party looks like a Trumpy party that works in some states. It works in some parts of a state like Virginia, but it doesn't get you enough voters uh, to win a statewide election in Virginia. And if anything, it it makes it tougher, I think, for a Republican in most of the state, not all the state. And the, the Trumpy areas stayed for Gillespie, but they didn't have a you know particularly big turnout. The areas that were anti-Trump really had a big turnout. So in a way, Gillespie got the worst of both worlds. He sort of uh, he didn't benefit from sort of ex, you know excessive Trump turnout, so to speak, but he paid the whole the price of a of a very high anti-Trump turnout. So a, a very worrisome election day for Republicans. I think that's true if you look elsewhere around the country, and um, it does make one wonder about what happens in tw- November 2018, a year from now. Well, this was also uh, almost kind of a test case for a particular strategy, which was to be Trumpy without Trump, to kind of adopt some Trumpy issues, but keep arm's length from Trump the president, not have him come into the state. And it looks pretty clear that that strategy is no longer operative. Yeah, maybe someone else could pull it off better. But I think, you know, you're going to pay the price for Trump. I suppose you could go the other to another sort of extreme and just embrace him and think maybe you'll jack up your the turnout among Trump. certain groups and you'll also uh, force the Democrats into some errors if you sort of have that kind of Trumpy attack style and run a less, uh, you know, a campaign that's more like Trump. I don't know. I think that's awfully risky, though. A lot of Trump support was personal. And first of all, Trump lost Virginia and he lost some other, many other states. Uh, he won more of them than he lost, but uh, lost a lot of the bigger states. So, you know, it's uh, it's not clear from the in, the in the House of Representatives that uh, running as a more Trumpy candidates can help you in, you know, moderately upscale suburban districts. I mean, the suburban area was a real the suburbs were a slaughterhouse for Republicans, and you know there are a lot of suburban districts up in 2018 that are held by moderate or even fairly conservative Republicans, but that are something close to 50-50 districts. That's the one I live in, and you got to think there it's going to be a tough holding those seats, individual members might be able to do it in some cases. The other, the number for Virginia that stands out for me also, though, and this, as someone who's not, for, who's anti-Trump, I've got to say I've been fearing this for a while, is the age distribution. Uh, among voters 18 to 44, so that's 18 to 44, not 24, 34, not just some kids, you know, at 44, you're getting up into, you know, serious family, you know, heads of families and so forth. Voters 18 to 44 went two to one Democratic, two to one for North and one for Gillespie. I mean, you just are, lo- we are lo- Republicans are losing the next generations and not just the next generations, but, you know, current, you know, important young generation, younger generations. They're doing OK with older voters, but obviously the older voters, you know, cycle out and younger voters come up. And I just think as a medium term, long term strategy, and this again confirms the real danger that a Trumpy GOP is just not going to end up being a majority party. Well, we could look at all sorts of uh, strategies for trying to uh, get a win here or get a win there for the GOP. But you ask in an editorial in the Weekly Standard uh, in the current issue, the question, why not, asking a question about why not make more bold efforts to change the politics that we're in? Yeah, I mean, we're we're in a situation where an awful lot of Republicans, or I'll just speak for myself, someone like me, uh, really does not want to have a choice between Donald Trump and, let's say, Elizabeth Warren in 2020. We had a bad choice in 2016. I think another bad choice in 2020, a 
identification of Trump as the Republican leader. Um, I'm not for that, and and I'm not certainly for electing Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or, or other left wing Democrats or really any Democrats. I prefer not to have as president, especially the left wing ones. Is there a way to avoid that? Well, really, when you think about it, there are only two ways. One would be for someone to defeat Trump in a primary or maybe persuade him not to run free election. That's rare. It hasn't happened in a long time. It, you know, people came fairly close. Reagan came very, very close with Ford. Kennedy came somewhat close with Carter. Uh, Johnson was forced out of a race in 68. I guess that was the last time really someone, an incumbent president, was uh, in effect denied renomination. Um, could that happen? Probably not. Uh, but the point of my little piece is, you know, these are unusual times and we should take a little bit of a uh, atmosphere. But why not? I'm just because it hasn't happened in a while doesn't mean that it, it can't happen. And the other way to deny a, you know, to avoid having to choose between Trump and let's say Elizabeth Warren, who I think is the most likely Democratic nominee at this point. Is she the Jeremy uh, not, Corbyn of uh, American politics? Yeah, she's less left wing than Corbyn, but therefore probably more electable, actually. And um, uh, though Corbyn now, unfortunately, looks electable, too. So um, I mean, I, anyway, what, yeah, she, whoever it is, uh, Sanders, Corey, Warren, these are, the whole party will have been dragged left. So even someone whose reputation isn't that left wing will end up, I'm afraid, being quite left wing by 2020. The other way to avoid that choice is an independent candidate. Obviously, that's something that's been tried, never quite worked. Ross Perot got 19 million votes. George Wallace got a few states. Uh, the last person to really be competitive at a third party level was Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt's over a century ago. But again, I sort of say, well, look, why not? These are unusual times. Uh, people need to be serious about the choice. So I, my main argument is just not to be passive, not, not to be fatalistic. We're not doomed to a Trump-Elizabeth Warren race. We may need to be imaginative and we may need to be bold and we may need to take a, a flyer on a couple of either within the Republican Party or as a kind of independent candidate and, uh, uh, you know, enterprise uh, a way of avoiding this this fate that seems to loom before us. Obviously, people who are friendlier to Trump than I won't be quite as uh, unhappy about the prospect of you know a Trump renomination. But I, I think the Virginia race also does suggest that who knows? Obviously, things could change. But we've had a good economy. We've avoided major foreign policy crises. Trump's still at 38, 39, 40 percent. Uh, doesn't seem like the Trumpy message is uh, doing very well. Maybe Trump for personally is going to be so dominant that people will want to re uh, reelect him. I'm pretty doubtful though. And I don't think it would be a very good thing either. So uh, I am, I am uh, sort of taking, uh, I'm usually, in the, as I say in the piece, usually this is Bob Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy's favorite quotation. One of his favorite quotations, uh, some that's from George Bernard Shaw. It's often paraphrased one way or another, but uh, I think John Kennedy first started using it. You know, some ask, some men, some people ask how, why, uh, see how things are, see, and ask why. Others uh, dream of things that are not, and, and, and ask why not. And uh, in a way, as a conservative, I've always disliked that because it, it does encourage a kind of utopian dreaming. If things are not, there's probably a good reason for it. So the why not question is usually, well, that's not practical or reasonable. But I don't think. Uh, defeating someone in a primary is, is utopian and having an independent candidate possibly win isn't utopian. It doesn't require a transformation of human nature. It does require overcoming some political obstacles. So that's my that's my little piece. And uh, Bill Crystal, starry eyed utopian. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I say in the piece that maybe this is a little wish 
wishful and hopeful, but maybe we need a little bit of wishfulness and hopefulness here. I've got to say, being here, I've had a fun time in London. They say very much like a lot of the young people. I saw some old friends, too. There's some very impressive people over here, but you don't come back from, I won't be coming back from London thinking, well, you know, conservatism and Republican Party are not doing too well in the U.S., but hey, here in Britain, they're doing great. I come back thinking, boy, they got problems over here, too. And so just as Reagan and Thatcher kind of, you know, led with the Republican, the conservative parties in each country and the conservative cause to new heights, I'm afraid we're, we're in rough times in, in, in both countries today. Bill Crystal, thanks for joining us on the Crystal Clear Podcast. My pleasure, Eric. Support for the Crystal Clear Podcast comes from The Great Courses. There's a lot happening in the world right now, and it's important to keep asking questions, learning new things. One way to do that is by watching The Great Courses Plus. I have unlimited access to learn from award-winning professors about anything that interests me. There are thousands of lectures on everything from history, science, language, to how to appreciate wine and play chess. I can watch videos on a TV, laptop, tablet, smartphone, or just stream the audio with the Great Courses Plus app. I've been learning a lot from the course Thinking About Cybersecurity from Cybercrime to Cyber Warfare. In this course, cybersecurity expert Paul Rosenzweig explores big data, digital espionage, and the tools we can use to protect ourselves from cybercrime. In one lecture titled Nations at Cyber War, he examines the highest level of cyber conflict, a cyber war between nation-states. What is meant by the term cyber war? How does one fight a battle in cyberspace? What do the enemies look like? Do traditional international rules of armed conflict apply? How do we counter such an attack, and should we? I want you to benefit from the Great Courses Plus, too. And right now, they're giving our listeners a full month of unlimited access to enjoy all of the lectures for free. But you need to sign up with my special URL. Get started today. Sign up now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash standard. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash standard. That's it for today's Crystal Clear Podcast. I'm Eric Felton. Catch you next time.